0: Please turn with me tonight back to the book of Nehemiah. We're going to go back here. We have tonight's message and probably, probably just one more after this. But, you know, sometimes those turn into two, so we'll see. But um, we're almost all the way through this book of Nehemiah and this idea of the character of leadership and what God expects of his followers, how he expects us to lead for him and to um, influence others around us for the glory of God towards the things of God. And and surely Nehemiah is one who has done that. And so last time we looked at the vision of leadership and we looked at how uh, Nehemiah's vision for the people was that they would repopulate the city of Jerusalem and, and thus follow the plan of God in those things because that's what God Had intended for his people to do, and where he intended for them to live, to carry out these the the plan of 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 God towards the coming of the Messiah. As I said before, this this group of people is the bridge from from those who had been in the land and and been exiled, and now they've come back, and they're the bridge to that next uh, generation from which the Messiah would come. And so tonight we're going to look at the rest of chapter twelve, where we left off last time, and talk about. The dedication by leadership that takes place here. In Nehemiah chapter 12, look at verse 27. Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, both with thanksgiving and singing with cymbals and stringed instruments and and harps. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the countryside around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Netaphethites, from the house of Gilgal and from the fields of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers have built themselves villages all around Jerusalem. Then the priests and Levites purified themselves and purified the people, the gates and the wall. So I brought the leaders of Judah up on the wall and appointed two large thanksgiving choirs, one went out on the right hand of the wall towards the refuse gate. After them went Hoshiah and half the leaders of Judah, Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, and some of the priests' sons with trumpets. Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Mataniah, the son of Micaiah, the son of Zachar, the son of Asaph, and his brethren, Shemaiah, Azarel, Meliah, uh, m- m- Meliah, Gililah, Mai, Nethanel, Judah, and Henai, with the musical instruments of David, the men of the man of God, and Ezra the scribe went before them by the fountain gate in front of them. They went up the stairs of the city of David on the stairway of the wall beyond the house of David, as far as the water gate eastward. The other Thanksgiving choir went the opposite way. And I was behind them with half of the people on the wall and going past the tower of the ovens as far as the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim, above the old gate, above the fish gate, the tower of Hananel, the tower of the hundred, as far as cheap gate. And they stopped by the gate of the prison. So the two thanksgiving choirs stood in the house of God. Likewise, I and half of the rulers with me. And the priest, Eliakim, messiah, Benjamin, Micaiah, Elohim, Eloni, Zechariah and Hananiah, with trumpets. Also, Maseiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzzi, Jehoihan, Jehoihanan, Malkijah, Elam and Ezra. The strings sang loudly. To, the singers sang loudly together, with Jez- Jezrahiah, the director. Also that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off. At the same time, some were appointed over the rooms of the storehouses for the offerings, the first fruits, and the tithes, to gather them in from the fields of the cities of the the portion specified by the law for the priests and Levites. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and Levites who ministered. Both the singers and the gatekeepers kept the charge of their God and the charge of the purification according to the command of David and Solomon his son. For in the days of David and Asaph of old, there were chiefs of the singers, and songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. In the days of Zerubbabel, in the days of Nehemiah, all Israel gave portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, a portion for each day. They also consecrated holy things for the Levites, and the Levites consecrated consecrated them for the children of Aaron. And so what we have here tonight is this dedication by leadership of the wall of Jerusalem, and, and, and a fitting, really the, the end of chapter 12 here is, is almost really the climax of the whole story. This is where this has all been driving is to this point. When, when Nehemiah hears about the wall, and Nehemiah goes and surveys the wall and begins to gather the people, and, and when the, the walls even when the wall's completed after they've stood up against the enemies, and we'll talk through all of that tonight, kind of review that, this is where it's all been going to, because it's over, it's finished. And, and, and so we look at the dedication that's taken place by those who are leading such as Nehemiah and others, and then by those who are there and part of that work. And we understand that in life, everyone is dedicated to something or someone in their lives. That dedication that informs our actions and our motives as we carry out our plans in life. If we're dedicated to a specific human relationship— We're going to put our efforts into fostering that relationship and growing that relationship. If we're dedicated to to our job, we're going to cultivate a hardworking attitude and position ourselves for greater opportunities. And as Christians, our dedication belongs not to the temporal things of this world, but to God and to God alone. Everything we do should point to him. Everything we do should further our relationship with him. It should please him. It affects and colors our decisions, our attitudes, our actions, our relationships. It affects everything about us. And so Nehemiah, Nehemiah was a man who was dedicated to leading for the Lord. He served God with all he had, and he led God's people in this great work. And so now, as the work of the hearts of the people has taken place, the whole work of Nehemiah, I mean, everything here now is, is being dedicated to God. And Nehemiah leads the people in this important ceremony we find recorded in the balance of chapter 12. And what we see in this passage that we just read is that whatever God's people do should be to please, honor, and further his kingdom, no matter how mundane, practical, or normal it may seem. I mean, the book of Nehemiah is full of a lot of mundane, normal, practical things. I mean, something that's very routine is like all of these lists of names you know, that we see over and over again that that plague me every time, apparently, right? But but that's a very routine thing. But but everything we do and everything that God records and everything that we go, even the, 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 the simple little things like like how they built the wall and where they did it and what they did and, and 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 the events that took place all around surrounding that, all is to further the kingdom of God, to further the work of God, and that's true in our lives today. And so we see a few things here. In this passage, and the first one is this there's a preparation that takes place for dedication. That comes in verses 27 through 30. And before we do that, let's review the first year's accomplishments in the life of Nehemiah. Because as I said, this chapter is the climax of all that's been done in Jerusalem under Nehemiah. It, what began as a burden in his heart for his homeland and the glorious city of Zion of God has become an incredible testimony of God's grace and goodness. And there has been an incredible marriage of trusting God and working for him with all, with, with all your might displayed throughout these accounts. And now as the people prepare to dedicate the wall, I think it's a good time for us to recap where we've come from and what's being celebrated in this chapter. So go all the way back to Nehemiah chapter 1 in your mind and remember that Nehemiah heard from his brother and he heard the news of what had happened in Jerusalem and how the wall was broken down and, and though the people had been allowed to return from exile, the city of Jerusalem lay in ruins and it was unable to defend itself against local enemies. And Nehemiah was burdened by God upon hearing the state of Jerusalem. His heart was moved towards his city. However, Nehemiah was also not entirely in a position to necessarily do anything about that because he was the cupbearer to the king. He was in a very important, he was in a very prominent but very important position in the kingdom. And, and you know, just so you know, right, you don't log vacation days when you serve an empire, okay? Uh, when your people are subjugated, you are you are doing whatever they tell you to do. And so he just wasn't in a place where it was feasible for him just to get up and leave and do something about it. So he began to pray to the Lord about his burden. We see that from the very beginning of Nehemiah's um, records, that that he is one who spends time talking to God. And he prays that God would would give him the opportunity to to make a difference. And when God provided him that opportunity that comes in Nehemiah chapter 2, he again prayed and depended on the Lord to, to give him the wisdom for that. Even in that moment as he faced uh, what he was going to say, we have recorded there the prayer that he offers to God to guide him. But Nehemiah wasn't a guy who just said, you know, we're just going to, I don't need to do anything, I just let go and let God. He also understood there's a, there's a balance there, that we trust God with everything that we have, and we serve God with everything that we have, but very practically in order to do that, we have to be ready. And we have to be willing to do and so when the, when the opportunity arose for the king, to, to, for him to present to the king what was on his heart, and he was asked then, okay, what, you know, what are you going to do about this? How long do you need to be gone? And, and he, he's prepared with a plan to, to offer to the king then of what he needs and how long he would need to do it. He's an intensely practical man, recognizing the control of God over all things, but preparing to play his part in God's plan as God opens the doors. And Nehemiah then helped to organize a group of defeated, disparaged people. The people of Israel had faced opposition time after time after time. And, and we know that, that in the past they had even been lied about and their work had been discontinued. When uh, We read about that in the book of Ezra. But Nehemiah once again called on them to, to the work of God and he set them on this great project. And so in chapter 3, you come across this list of all of these people who are engaged in the project. But like anything that's done for the Lord, um, it faces opposition. You have external opposition and pressure that comes along. You have these men who oppose the work of God, who who sought, uh, who even threatened physical harm to them. And Nehemiah, we read, when faced with that situation, armed the people with the weapons and trumpets that they could be ready for that. And we said that that really is this phrase of trust and keep your powder dry, right? That you trust God, that he's the one who's in control, but you're always ready to stand. And then you turn over into the next chapter and find that that, that, that there's not just problems without, there's problems within, there's internal issues. And and Nehemiah calls out sin that's committed against fellow Jews and and, and realize that, that the sin more than anything, could have torn that entire thing apart. Because sin is ugly, and that's what it does. He also then withstood personal attacks on his character. He showed himself to be one who is committed to God alone, leading for his glory and not on some personal quest. And Nehemiah then led the people to the completion of the wall. In only 52 days, this wall had been rebuilt to, to, to encompass what would be the city. And then the second phase could begin. There was the rebuilding of the people. And we looked through three specific different chapters talking about the revival of the people uh, of Israel, of Jerusalem. Nehemiah supported a revival that took place as the people were rebuilt in the things of God. And the people's hearts turned to their God as they prepared to serve his city. And that, that brought us to last time where we discussed Nehemiah's vision to, to then fill the city with God's people, to repopulate it. And so with the physical and the spiritual work now coming to a head together, the culmination comes in the rest of chapter 12. And really, this is the high point, as I said, of Nehemiah. Everything that, that we've been studying and talking about and reading, it all builds to this, all the sweat, all the sweat, All the time, all the planning, all the confession, the dedication, and the revival has pointed us to the second part of chapter 12. And so the people begin to gather. And we read about that in verses 27 through 30, that there is gathering peoples. Because though some lived outside of Jerusalem, the city is what's the focus of the glorious event taking place in Nehemiah chapter 12. So therefore... The Levites who live in the surrounding cities have been summoned to to come and to carry out their duties within the gates of Jerusalem. And this was, from the outset, declared to be a very joyous and festive occasion. The purpose for their gathering was to celebrate with gladness. They were to come together and thank God for everything that he had done for them. They were to sing and to play their instruments, and so the people come. You know, it is good and right for God's people to gather and praise God for his goodness. We should long to do that. We should long to gather with other believers, whether it be in a church or in our own homes, outside of, of what we may call, quote-unquote, you know, normal church times, and just talk about the goodness of God. You know, yesterday, um, I, I just so enjoy you know, uh, having the opportunity to, you know, yesterday I went down with my kids um, to watch that green and white team that plays here in the state of Michigan. Okay, I have to be careful; I don't want to make any enemies up here. Okay, um, and 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 one of our men from our church went along with us, and we just have a great time talking about the things of God and talking about what He's done and those sorts of things. It's just a wonderful opportunity that we should long to to discuss the things of God, not avoid talking about them. The Jews have not had much to celebrate in recent times of Nehemiah's day. As, they, as their lives have been extremely difficult. I mean, just think back on all the stuff that's taken place over, the, over these years of exile, of, of before, even before that, the evil and wicked kings they had endured. But today is different. Today is a day to celebrate. Today is a day to revel in the goodness of God and to give him glory. Glory. And so they prepare themselves to worship the Lord adequately and appropriately. We read that the priests and the Levites, verse 30, purified themselves and purified the people, the gates, and the wall. God's law instructed his people on how they were to worship him and approach him. Understand this, that only God and God alone can tell us how we are to relate to him. You and I don't get to pick and choose. Well, this is what we think God would like. No, God tells us what he likes. God tells us how to worship him. God tells us who he is and how we approach him. And very specifically, the, the, the people living under the Old Testament law, it was very specific how you were to approach God, right? And so the people have to go through these purification processes, and these processes were to remind the people of his holiness and their sinfulness. There was a, the sprinkling of water, there's animal sacrifices, fasting, sometimes abstinence that usually was observed during these times. And, and these outward actions were not something that made people holier than other people, but they were symbols of the effect of sin in our hearts. See, all of these outward pictures are, are, are pointing in here, in and of ourselves we are unfit to come before God. Period, end of statement, right? We have nothing that we can offer to say, well, this is what I did, God. The people needed to adhere to what God called on them to do, that they may worship him properly. And even here, you see an encouraging and wondrous change of heart because the old Jerusalem, right, right? Before the exile, when things were really bad, they're not doing this kind of stuff, right? They're not following these things. And, and even when, um, you know, way back, you just could go all throughout all of Israel's history. It's very, you know, up and down, right? But it's such an encouraging thing here to say there's been a change of heart. There's, there's no flippancy or disregard for the things of God. There is instead a reverence for and obedience to God's requirements, And I think there's a great application to our own lives, because in our own lives, do we recognize the need to worship God and approach him appropriately? Now, we don't live in Old Testament times. I get that, right? We live under the covenant of grace of God, but it does not make God any less holy. He deserves our highest and our greatest praise. He deserves our utmost attention to worshiping him appropriately. Whether it be in pers- our personal times in the word of God or gathering for corporate worship, the presence of God is something we must not enter casually. And, and we must live with a constant idea or, or even um, um, awareness of the presence of God in our own lives that God is always there, and that we don't want to, to hurt our relationship with him or, 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 or put anything that would, that would hinder us from worshiping him appropriately. And with the people prepared, we begin then to see the celebration that takes place. This is found in verses 31 through 43. We won't read all of those verses again, but we'll talk about the ideas that are found there. And we see what happens is the walking of the wall that takes place because the chosen people that, that Nehemiah had set up now assemble for our most glorious dedication ceremony of the rebuilt wall. And so um, what you have is, is the, the, the wall that Nehemiah built is not the, the original Jerusalem wall. It's actually a smaller um, footprint. Uh, I have up here, maybe you can see it, maybe not, this map of the wall and, and all that, that that goes out in the green out there, do you see that out to the left? That's all before the exile. That's all that was inhabited there. Um, and, so, and, and so that's the old ruined walls. And then on the inside, see how it kind of snakes down on the inside there on the right side? That's, that's the wall that Nehemiah built. So you can see it's, it's a good, the footprint's a good bit smaller than what had originally been built. And so what you read here in this passage is that they most likely, they all meet here in what's called the Valley Gate. And the first group, and what we want to remember is, is that actually the Valley Gate is a very interesting place because that's where Nehemiah began and ended that survey trip that he took in chapter 2. The first group, we read, then takes off and goes counterclockwise they go south and east around the wall there and they they walk towards the refuse gate and they go all the way up to the water gate and the other group we'll talk about here in a second goes the other direction and where they're going to meet is is they're going to meet in the temple so perhaps that first group even goes all the way up um, to to the east gate of the city which is up in that near that top right corner so they can come back in and go into the temple. What we read is that Ezra, who is, who is the priest, who, who is leading the worship of, of the people and helping them in the revival, he led this first group of people who went counterclockwise around the wall. We also read there are half of the leaders of Judah, we read about the priests, we read about some of them who had trumpets, and then that second group went the other direction and they ended at the gate of the prisoners, or it's called the gate of the guard, and this included the Thanksgiving choir that went with them and, and Nehemiah, as well as presumably the other half of the officials and the priests that were mentioned in verse 41 with the trumpets. I mean, there's, a, there's an incredible display of celebration that's going on. And notice, did you catch that when we read through? Okay, it's in verse 31, where these people walked. Look at verse 31 and say it out. Where did they walk? On the wall. Not around the wall, not inside the wall, but physically on the wall. Now, do you remember Nehemiah chapter 4 and verse 3, a guy named Tobiah and what he said would happen? Remember the picture he said? Okay, let's turn back there. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 3. This is when they're launching their attacks. It says, now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him. That's beside Sambalat. And he said, whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Well, guess what? They are marching around and playing instruments and singing and praising the Lord. And you know what's not happening? It's not falling down. This is a, an incredible display of victory against the lies of the enemy. And of course, we look at that and say, well, that I mean, that's hyperbole in, in, in chapter 4. Of course it is. Because the enemy doesn't have to tell the truth. They'll do whatever it takes to discourage us. And God has done an incredible thing for his people, and they offer him the rightful praise he is due. And, and as part of that, we see the offerings that the people bring. So within the celebration of dedication, there's different offerings that we see. The first is that the wall and the work itself is an offering to God. This is a procession of dedication. And the whole idea behind what the people are doing is that they're offering their work to God. As they walk around that wall that they spent 52 days building, as, they, as they, they look around and see all that God has done in their hearts, what they're doing is, is they're offering it to him because it's through his help and his strength that they accomplished all of this. What they have accomplished under Nehemiah was impossible without God. The city of Jerusalem was God's city. And so they wish to offer to God their work for his use. They are giving God their city, and they're giving God their lives through their own revival for his use. And, you know, we still do things, um, you know, maybe perhaps the, the word would be officially or ceremonially like this today. You know, maybe you've been a part of a church that built a new building, and you have a dedication service. Everybody ever been a part of something like that, where you were part of something that dedicated? Uh, maybe it was again. Maybe it's a building. Maybe it's a, a parking lot. Uh, whatever you know, a, a church may build. In these corporate gatherings, the sentiment is much the same as what's observed here. It's saying to the Lord that the building that has been built is given to Him for His use and glory. But let me tell you, this sentiment. And this attitude should not be limited to a church building. I think of things that we have done even here in our local assembly. I I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, just kind of in passing. I make a huge deal about it. But one of the major things we've done around here recently is we've, we've changed all of our lights to LED all around the building. And one of the things that we want to do with that is we want to continue to further the work of the kingdom. Even just something like that, even a a very, again, mundane, run-of-the-mill project, like changing all the light bulbs in your church so that you can save money and be better stewards of things, is is dedicated to, to, hey, we want to use this for the work of God. We don't do this just so the power bill looks better next year. We don't do this so we can see things better around the church. We do this so that we can offer it to the Lord. We thank him for allowing us the funds and the ability to do things like that and ask that he be honored and glorified in it. And we, we would ask that even with a simple project like that, we, we'd be able to honor and serve him more. But that dedication should then extend into our personal lives. I mean, think about these things, okay? What are things in your life that you can continually and dedicate to God and his use? Well, you know, how many of you live in, in a home, right? Okay. You can use that home for the glory of God, right? It starts with your family, right that you That you do things there. If you have kids, you raise your kids in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, right? And, and seek to raise them in, in that way. If you have a spouse, that you that you you uphold the things of God in your relationship. But that goes beyond that, right? Ministering to other people with the, with the home that God has given to you. Or your time that God has given to you. And that's something that, you know, in our world we struggle to feel like we have enough of, right? But setting aside time in our lives constantly. Even just even when we're doing other things to dedicate the time to God to be used for Him. The talents that He gives us. The vehicles that He gives us. I mean, whatever else we have in our lives should all be up for dedication to God's use. What God has given... We must not be miserly with, but instead give to him in his service. This is our reasonable and expected duty to him as his children. And we have to understand that there is nothing good that you and I enjoy that God has not given us. It's all a blessing from him. So how can we take that which he has so richly blessed us with and give it back to him through ministry? You and I can live lives that are dedicated to our Lord every day. So, so the work of the people is dedicated to God. Second, we see there's an obvious offering of music that the people were giving to God as they proceeded around the wall and they came to the temple. It's just amazing, right? It talks about the instruments that they had. It talks about the choir and and even mentions, you know, the choir director, right? That's like a choir director's favorite Bible verse, right? Because, you know, there's this guy leading these people. It's an important thing. Music stirs our hearts and our souls. Music is a gift from God. And music creates with us, in us, reactions. And it causes us to give expression to our feelings that we may not know how to give otherwise. So we should sing unto the Lord. May our lips give praise to him and rejoice in who he is and what he has done. And this is appropriate for the follower of God. So I would just say as a Christian, you need to make God-honoring music a part of your life in some way, shape, or form. Even just outside of we gather at the church every week and I open my hymnal and I stand there and sing praise the Lord, right? Mr. Child leads the music. He can probably tell me you know, who sings like that and who doesn't, right? But just even that one time a week isn't enough. We should engage in the things of God and sing praises to him. Music has become more and more a, what I call, spectator sport in our world. Um, I have them, you have them, we have these little earbuds, right? And we pop them in our heads. They're great, right? But, but sometimes we get so used to that consumer mentality that we quit singing. We, kept, we quit praising God. Well, I mean, I like to listen to music, but yeah, but do we ever offer that music to God? I'm not talking about everybody should sing a solo in church, okay? We get it. Not everybody should sing a solo in church, all right? God doesn't call everybody to sing a solo in church. That's not what we're talking about. God calls us to give him praise and worship in our personal lives and to offer these things to him. God's people should seek and relish opportunities to offer praise to God. In church, open the hymnal. Use the screen to praise God. Let us extol his name together. When you're at work or you're, some of you, by yourself, offer praise to God, Right? And you know what, Dad, if you don't sing great, let your family hear you sing anyway. Show them how much you love God. Sing the praises of him. Teach your kids to sing. Let us extol his name together. And then third, the people actually did offer sacrifices physically to God as well. These were undoubtedly those things that were prescribed in the law of God. God told his people what sacrifices to bring to him on specific occasions, and undoubtedly these are sacrifices that were pleasing to him. And that's, what an incredible day. I mean, this was such an amazing day that you read in verse 43 that God made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. I love this phrase, so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard, what? Afar off. Imagine being in one of those little places around there. Imagine being, um, remember these guys, Samballot and Tobiah. Maybe you're in the neighborhood that day and you hear all this commotion, right? Because they're praising God. It's an amazing and wonderful day. The people could not contain themselves because of God's goodness to them. You see, God's goodness in our lives should lead to us overflowing with rejoicing to him. It should be normal for a Christian to joyfully serve God. And this celebration then rolls into the provision for further worship of God. In those last few verses, 44 through 47, you see the provision of dedication. It talks about these storerooms. The storerooms are, are, are just those rooms, those side rooms that are attached to the temple. And they housed all that was needed to provide for the worship of God and to take care of the servants of God who led that worship. So the people were to bring the items that were needed to these rooms. They were expected to come and, and give those things. And Nehemiah appointed some that were supposed to go and gather these things and take care of them. They would gather the tithes from the people and from the land that was required. And, and this meant that the people had to be willing to give it. This is how it had been outlined more than 500 years ago under King David. So Nehemiah wasn't just a man of administration. He was a man of worship. He was calling on the people to worship God. And when God's work is focused on doing things in God's way, God's people are willing to give and support it. That that point proves true over and over and over again. Do you want to see a place where people are willing to give and to support and to do things in a way that honors God? It's a place that's seeking to do things in a way that honors and pleases God. That's where that spirit is fostered. When we view God as the center of all things, that does impact our giving. And now the glorious work of Nehemiah's first acts, it comes to a close. He's done so many wonderful things for the Lord. He's, he's led God's people in God's way and they've responded by obeying the Lord. And I think it's just an incredible testimony of leadership from this man again. We see that whatever God's people do, should be to please, honor, and further his kingdom, no matter how mundane or practical or normal it may seem. God has done incredible things for his people. This is true over and over again, not just in Israel in the time of Nehemiah, but it continues on into today. God did incredible things for his people then, and he continues to do incredible things for his people now. And first and foremost on that list, of course, is salvation. But he blesses us with so many good and wonderful gifts on a daily basis as we serve him. As a Christian, your life is not to be dedicated to your own happiness or well-being or other pursuits. The way we live our lives should be an offering to our creator, redeemer, and king. Our lives should overflow with praise to our God and understand that that sin hurts and it hinders our relationship with God so that we cannot honor him as we should. But we should live lives consumed with the glory and the praise of God.